Hi, this is Regaline Sabat, also known as Gigi. You're listening to Walk With Me podcast. My guest today is Michael D. Butler. Michael D. Butler is a book publisher, global speaker, and media coach. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on, Regaline, and congratulations on your success this year. Thank you, Michael. I truly appreciate you. Now, you're my book publisher as well, and I just want to say that you have been so supportive on my journey, and I truly appreciate you. Thank you. Well, it, it's been a lot of fun, and your story is is empowering lives. You know, Walk With Me was your first book, and now with the new year, uh, God first. Uh, I'm of the opinion, like you are, that every author should publish a new book every year because content can change truly people's lives. So, Amen. Yes, that's right. Now, can you start off by telling us about you and where you are from? You know, I grew up on the farm in Oklahoma and uh, with my brother and, and uh, there weren't many kids around. We were way out in the country. In fact, we were so far out in the country that my mom sent a note to the coach of the little league teams that I would have to play on my big brother's team because my mom and our neighbor would take turns driving my brother and I and Tony into uh, little league games and practices because we were nine miles out. But it was, it was a fun experience. Wouldn't change it for anything. Grew up on that farm. There were only four kids within a four square mile area. And, um, you know, growing up on the farm brought a lot of opportunities. I can remember just riding the bus home from school at eight years old and saddling and bridling my horse and riding my horse all over the pasture before I would do my chores and my parents would get home. I would always get my, my horse ride in at eight years old. And, you know, growing up on the farm and just connecting with God, connecting with nature, connecting with my dog, Joe, and, and my horse. And it was just, it, it was a childhood like a lot of kids don't have today, you know, get to grow up on the farm and be around cows and be out in the field and hunting and be out in the pasture and God's creation. So I, I was truly, I'm truly grateful for that. You know, I, that was the mainstay in my life then as a child in Oklahoma was my church family and, um, and my baseball team. Those were the two things in the summertime. It was all about baseball. And of course, mom made us get our chores done first. Uh, we grew up on a big farm and, and my brother and I would have to do our chores in the, in the garden before we could go to go swimming or, or go play baseball. But we were always very disciplined getting everything done. And my social life revolved around church. And then, uh, and, and then going into school, I, I realized going into first grade and going into kindergarten that I had a stuttering problem. I never noticed it before. It never really been an issue, but just being around so many other kids, uh, I think there was some anxiety there because I was used to just having my few friends, but I showed up in a school with a hundred other kids and it just kind of terrified me. And it took me a few years to get through that. But eventually I did work through that. But I know the frustration of somebody, an author, a speaker, having a message so alive and so huge on the inside that you're trying to get it out to the world and it just doesn't come out. And it's frustrating. It was frustrating for me because, you know, kids would make fun of me. Kids would mock me, ridicule me as I stuttered in first and second grade. And um, so I just became an introvert. You know, I'm naturally, you've known me for a while now, I'm naturally outgoing and gregarious, but um, that made me an introvert. Uh, eventually, by the grace of God, I overcame. And uh, one way I overcame was creating my own stories. My brother and I on the farm uh, would produce TV shows. You know, we had 30 cows and my dog and we would cut to commercial and 
I would stage these props and these sets around my playground and my backyard and in the garden. And uh, we would cut to commercial and then I would do the, uh, do the commercials. And so it helped me um, really be able to cope, but also use my imagination to make things happen. And, and I think that's one way uh, I was able to, to overcome. So. That is absolutely an inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, you, you know, I, I got to tell you though, I still get terrified as a speaker. I've given three thousand paid speeches, and I still—I wouldn't say terrified, but I still get nervous before I get on stage in front of fifty people or five thousand people. It doesn't matter. I just—I get nervous because I want to bring the best. And there's always that: Did I prepare? Am I ready? Will I forget something? Now, for the folks that are listening now, if they are nervous as well before a speech, what is your best advice to them? Well, my best advice is have a conversation. You know, um, don't we don't want to make it about a one-way communication. We want to draw people into the talk. And the greatest communicator of all time to ask questions and told stories. And that's who I've learned from most is asking questions and telling stories draw people in in a conversation because that's the thing that's going to help them discover their golden nugget. And uh, we can't we can't force people to take a silver bullet or a red or a blue pill, but we can help them find their true bliss and their true purpose if they discover it themselves. You know, I, I'm a father of four and a grandfather of two and and at different ages you can tell kids different things and they'll receive it differently, but it's best when the receiver, when the reader, when the listener discovers it themselves. Amen. Very powerful. Now, you ran an ad at the age of 15 in the newspaper for lawn mowing, and you got 14 customers. Now, this led to you launching your entrepreneurial career. Tell us more about what inspired you to run this ad, Michael. You, you know, I think, you know, so, some people and, you know, the pandemic has forced some people to be entrepreneurs, right? Because they've had no other choice. And necessity is the mother of invention. And you do what you have to do to survive. But there was something about, you know, the, if you've been born with the entrepreneurial gene or if you're like me, you just can't work for somebody else. Because with me, I've walked off a few jobs in my college age where I just said I could do a better job than them, and I went out and started my own company. And this was one of those. But I, I've got to thank my mom because when we lived out in the country on those rural sections of road, um, she taught my brother and I that we could make change by picking up cans. And she was probably just wanting to beautify the neighborhood. And I'm just I'm counting quarters and dollars and snack money for for sodas and, and candy bars. And I remember that day we were out in the hot sun for three or four hours. And 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 I literally counted my change after we cashed in all those cans. And my brother, he wasn't too thrilled with it, but I was just thrilled. We got I got three dollars and eighty five cents after that four hours of work in the hot sun. And to me, that was when the entrepreneurial light bulb went off, because to me, three dollars and eighty five cents. It didn't matter. It took four hours. I'm like, Hey, what if I could hire people to help me and I could have people going up and down these roads? And even back then, that's how my mind worked. And so it, it was actually, yeah, at age 15, like you said, I ran an ad in the newspaper. It was my first copywriting job. It was just a small town and a small newspaper with 6,000 people in the town. And 14 little old ladies called and hired me to mow. I had saved money. I bought a lawnmower, <laughs> but I didn't think one, through one of the issues. And that was logistics. I didn't have a driver's license or a vehicle. I, I guess maybe I thought nobody was going to hire me, but I got 14 jobs out of that. And um, 
one of the biggest things about that job that I created for myself is, hey, I had to hire a driver. But my mom used to say to me, if it was raining on a Saturday, she would say, you call Miss Smith and tell her you're not coming because it's raining. You'll mow her lawn tomorrow. And I said, Mom, I don't want to call Miss Smith because <laughs> I didn't like picking up the phone, Regeline. And, you know, <laughs> it's all about picking up the phone if you're going to make money as an entrepreneur, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, I, my mom made me do it. You know, this was from me coming as that insecure, shy kid that stuttered. And so you call Miss Smith. Or I'm not going to take you to mow her lawn tomorrow. And then I had a dilemma. So my mom was a good motivator. She knew how to motivate me. And, um, you know, she didn't charge me gas money. She could have she could have charged me gas money and everything. I was I would have paid. I was willing to pay. And um, that job taught me how to pick up the phone, provide good customer service, follow up, and even sold that business to my brother for a dollar. because I should have sold it for a lot more than that because the local funeral home director noticed me. And he hired me to run all the maintenance and clean the funeral vehicles and, and run uh, maintenance there at the funeral home. So it helped me get noticed. And I, I later went on to start a janitorial company that did a million dollars in the first year. And that was the beginning of my customer service days. It was a lot of fun. That is amazing. And that led to your passion in direct sales space, correct? Yeah, my passion in direct sales. So um, I, I felt pretty strongly as a teenager well, I, I knew, for, exa for example, that math and science were not my thing. So I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor or scientist. And, um, and I went into ministry. And communications was always my thing. I always had a knack for marketing and writing copy. And, um, but did fill a calling to ministry. So after Bible college and seminary, I spent 14 years as a pastor, as a youth pastor, as, a, as an itinerant uh, speaker and youth evangelist around the country and around the world. And I just loved it so much, working with people and communicating. The thing that really bored me to tears as a pastor was when I'd have to sit in an office and because I had those counseling hours and to listen to people about their pro their marriage problems or whatever, raising their kid problems. And I just sitting there thinking, you know, smile and tell them something positive, but I got to get out of here. You know, I'm just, I feel trapped in this office. I've got to go create something and and, you know, here's what I found. Your gifts will make room for you. So if there's something that you're passionate about, find a way that you can do it. You know, Zig Zig, I was always passionate about public speaking. And uh, the first couple dozen times or 100 times that I spoke, I spoke for free. And Zig Ziglar said that he spoke a thousand times before he ever got paid to speak. You know, and people look up to him as one of the top motivational godfathers of all time is your gift will make room for you. And one thing this pandemic's done for a lot of people, you included, is you've expanded your platform uh, through virtual doing webinars like this, doing podcasts like this is you've literally I mean, I started my morning this morning early in Cyprus on a webinar with another anthology women's book of women all over Europe because you don't have to any longer be prevented from doing something, working with somebody because of geography. So what is your gift? What is your passion about? You know, what makes you the money right now? How can you expand that? How can you double that? Exploit your strengths. You know, Gigi, a lot of people say to me, how can I improve my weaknesses? And I say, forget about improving your weaknesses. Let's just go exploit your strengths. That will make you $100 million right there. Amen. Very powerful. Now, tell us more about what inspired you to become a book publisher. 
Well, you know, it was it was kind of interesting. I was con- I, I was on a career path of after, you know, I, I was doing the pastoral ministry, uh, but I wanted it. My kids were young at that time and I had just gone through a divorce. And I said to myself, what is the best way for me to provide well for my children as a single dad? And I found direct sales and direct sales. Uh, really was everything I was excited about. It was about teamwork. It was about recruiting. It was about personal development. It was about public speaking. It was about adopting a nonprofit. And it was it was about writing books. And so my very first book, Single Dad Survival Guide, uh, became a bestseller. And it's um, reconnecting with your kids and moving on with life after divorce. And so that was a lot of fun, just providing resources for single dads. But I would tell all my reps in and direct sales and network marketing is you got to write a book, you got to get on stage and start speaking, and you got to adopt a nonprofit or start a nonprofit. And so that was really the path and the journey that took me into the publishing world. I've always been fascinated with storytelling. And when you look at corporate brands, you look at uh, companies that have great success and legacy traction globally, they have a powerful, a powerful story. And so I found found a lot of success in that industry. And it, it got to be before Facebook that we were marketing a lot of our distributors on MySpace. And that was a little bit before your time. You maybe weren't ever on MySpace. I don't know. Yes, for just a short period of time. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an experiment in social media, but we were we were helping people sell wellness products on MySpace and helping blow up their brand to 5,000. The thing about MySpace is you could have 10,000 or 15,000 friends or 50,000 friends and that's part of what led to the demise of MySpace as Mark Zuckerberg looked at that and said this model doesn't really work because it's getting really spammy and really trashy. And the whole the whole purpose for MySpace it was started for bands they were showcasing their music to play in venues and get concert gigs. That's what MySpace was about. But it got to, there was too much flash and it would crash the servers. And if you had 15,000 friends trying to read your message at the same time, it was more of a digital billboard and the infrastructure just didn't work with the IPs and all that good stuff. So uh, Facebook says, let's create one idea and let's keep it really simple. So if you remember in the early days of Facebook, it was about minimalism. And I tell people, if you're building a brand, when you're starting out, you want to be about minimalism and you want to focus on your core values. How do you make money as an insurance agent? How do you make money as a consultant or coach? How do you make money as a chiropractor or as a caregiver or whatever it is you do on your day job? Get really solid at that. And then have your eggs not all in one basket, but diversify, have multiple streams of income, and then do things that um, add value and bring referrals to that. So we have a lot of free products. So, for example, if you've got anybody that's wanting to write a book, uh, I've written an 80-page book on how to write a bestseller, and it's called Bestseller Status, okay? And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide the book for free. You can go to bestsellerstatus.com and grab it. And um, just put in your email address there and you'll get the download link for the 80 page book. Thank you, Gigi. Bestsellerstatus.com. That book has literally helped thousands of people write a bestseller, get global distribution and create that bestseller. So I just want to give you that for free. Also, we have a writing course. And one thing we did at the beginning of the pandemic, Gigi, I'd been teaching this writing course for about five years and I said, what can I do? You know, God's really blessed our company. We've been really blessed. Last year, I, I was 
uh, fortunate to go to 20 countries to speak and to support our authors in these countries and at the book shows where we launched them. And, um, and uh, the writing webinar that I've done for the last five years, I said, you know what? I normally charge for this. Let me offer it for free. And so at writebook60days.com, people can actually uh, get access to the course. It's an eight-module course that will take you from concept, from your book idea to launching your book in eight weeks or in eight days. It's a, it's a do-it-yourself at your own pace. But we've taken 75 authors through this course during the pandemic, and half of them by the eighth week are 80% done with their manuscript. And then two months later, about 90% of them are ready to launch their book. So we've had a really good success ratio. After the first year, we're going to start charging for the course. But for right now, your listeners can access it for free. That is incredible. Thank you, Michael. Now, tell us more about your 140, well, 10, uh, <laughs> 40. Oh, the 1040 impact? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Well, 10, 1040 Impact is a uh, <clears throat> it's a nonprofit that I started this last year, and it's based on the 1040 window. If you're familiar with the 1040 window, it stretches longitude and latitude is 1040 from North Africa all the way to Asia and China. It includes countries like India, Mongolia, and uh, Egypt, and pretty much the Middle East to Far East Asia. And it's the world's most unreached people groups that haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you were to look at the, the areas of poverty in the world and the areas of lack of education and where human trafficking is highest, where child slavery is highest, it's in that 1040 window. And so we decided if we're going to make an impact, that's the place to make an impact. But we're not just throwing money at the wall and hoping something sticks. What we're doing at 1040impact.org is we're actually rescuing kids. But we have uh, organizations and people on the ground that we're working with, with the Safe House, with the bricks to school where we're not only rescuing this year, we rescued 75 kids from slavery that because of third generation debt, and you can watch the video on the website because of third generation debt, their grandparents needed a couple hundred dollars to buy groceries or to pay a medical bill. And because they couldn't afford it, they became indebted. And you know, in the U S fortunately we have usury laws. You can't, you can't over uh, charge people interest where they can never get out. You know, some credit cards are pretty high. Pawn shops are the worst. You know, payday check loans are the worst. But even that is not nearly as high as they have in countries like Pakistan, where we work. It's designed in countries like that, which it's 99% Muslim. In Pakistan, if you're a Christian, you can't go to college. Uh, you can only be a street sweeper. <clears throat> so most of the Christians end up, their kids get trafficked. Uh, they become a street sweeper. Or sanitation worker, and they have to do a menial job. And many of them, because you don't have OSHA here, you know your your jobs aren't safe. You know you're working in the street around oxes and busy traffic and cesspools of sewage and things like that. So it is a third world. Uh, it's a developing nation with 200 million people in Pakistan, but it is very much a third world country and very dangerous. And specifically dangerous if you're a Christian. Uh, if you're a Christian in Pakistan. Uh, you are persecuted. I mean, uh, basically, you can be blamed for blasph blasphemy and you can be stoned and killed and there be no repercussions. If you're a woman or you have a daughter who gets gets raped, um, there will not be any um, legal legal recourse. 
and um, they will blame it on her and say, well, it's her fault that she got raped. And because she's a Christian, it's part of the persecution. It's part of the process. But the way we're making a difference in that country is we're educating the kids. We're not only rescuing them from trafficking, but we have them in a safe house and they're being educated. They're being trained. They're being taught uh, the word of God. Uh, but they're also being taught life skills. They're taught math, science, English, how to read, how to write. So they're being taught skills. And as they get older, the kids right now are from ages four to 14, boys and girls in the safe house and at the brick to school um, where we rescued them from slavery is we have a staff of teachers that are teaching them six days a week, um, English, math, science, and uh, reading and writing. And then also skills as they're growing older, um, we're about to launch the, the beautician course where they're learning cosmetology and cutting hair and the women are learning that so they don't have to go back into slavery. And they can also liberate their parents and grandparents who are still making bricks 12 hours a day in the hot sun. It, it gets 120 degrees in Pakistan. You've got four-year-old kids up to 80-year-old grandmothers that are making um, 1,000 bricks a day in the hot sun, in the mud, bent over, in the mud, making the bricks and stacking them every day, thousand. And they're, they're making a dollar to two a day, but because the interest is so high on their family's debt, they're never getting, they're never getting liberated from the brick kiln factory life. And what we've done this year is we've liberated 75 kids from that life so they can go to school six days a week instead of sweating and toiling in the brick kiln factory sweatshop. That is amazing. And thank you for raising awareness in regards to human trafficking. Most folks don't even know it's happening right here in their backyard. So thank you. It is. It is. It's a big problem. And in fact, we're working with some authors this year that are writing books and publishing books with us for kids that are um, preteen age that are into, uh, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade to help them identify and spot if they're being groomed you know, and if they're being recruited into that, because it's very subtle and it's very evil, but it's happening at younger and younger ages. So this will make families aware, social workers, pastors and caregivers and parents aware of what's going on. So as the kids are reading the book, the girls, but also the boys, it's more and more of a problem with boys, too, uh, but particularly with girls to be aware of what to look, look for and what are the red flags. That is incredible. Now, Michael, tell us more about the major challenge that you had to overcome in your life. Well, I, I think with me, it was insecurity. I had um, the stuttering thing really threw me off. Um, my, my older brother, uh, we tease about this. He's my big little brother. He was valedictorian of a senior class, but about ninth grade, my brother Ken, who's two years older than me, I bypassed him in height. And so it kind of... Uh, it kind of gave me a boost of confidence that even though I was younger, I was now taller than him. And he's the brother that <coughs> I had to play on the same baseball team, which probably made me a better athlete. But at first it really stunk because all the kids were better than me. But it got to the point that you're in baseball, and I think I was probably 14 and he was he was 16. He was playing catcher and I was playing second base. And because we grew up playing together all summer long, uh, he and my two other friends out in the out in the pasture with cows and horses is we put everybody out and we all had to be on the same team. So the four of us boys were on the same team. And if your listeners are familiar with baseball, it's normally a nine man, nine person sport. Well, one of our players quit and our head coach quit. So our assistant coach, who was 17, ended up being our head coach. And we were short one player. We only had eight. So what that meant was every time we'd go around the innings and come to that ninth ghost 
player that we were supposed to have, we got an automatic out. But listen to this. We made it through the playoffs. We won the playoffs. We go into the championship game. We go into overtime, and with eight players and an underage player and a 17-year-old coach, we win in overtime. And that was the that was the celebration. That was the celebration. So I've always tried to look at life successes and not define myself by that, but definitely pat myself on the back because I'm a words of affirmation person. If you want to get on my good side, just just give me a compliment because I know you're probably ready to give me some feedback. And uh, if you've got employees or kids or coworkers or friends and spouses, you want to know what their love languages are. So that was one of the books that really helped me. Now, I read The Five Love Languages um, after my divorce, but I think that book maybe could have saved my marriage because I could have realized how to have been a better spouse, how to be a better husband. And it also would have helped me be a better parent because I can see how my four sons are different and how I could have understood them better, may help them feel more valued and listened to because I realized that they receive love differently than their brother does. And it's definitely helped me in my business relationships moving forward. <laughs> Amen. Very powerful. Now, Michael, what is your why that keeps you going? Well, you know, um, I told my dad when I was seven, I said, I said to my dad, I'm going to live to be 120. I had just read in the word of God that, that Moses and Abraham lived to be 120. Sarah and all these women were doing amazing things. And, and I said, you know what? I'm going to live to be 120. And he said, no, you only get 70 or 80 years. But as a kid, I had that revelation that this is what I want. This is what I'm going for. And, you know, do a Google search. People are living to be 120 now. And some people that aren't even taking care of themselves. So, you know, I supplement. I try to keep the stress out of my life. I try to stay healthy and things. But I think there, there's always room for improvement. And I think sometimes if people don't see overnight success, we're so trained in America. We want it so fast. But listen, if you do the little things, it's the 1% factor that make the difference. You know, if you look at the Kentucky Derby, you know, normally the winner is just you know, it's so close. It looks like they tie. They have to computer and slow it down and go and look. But if you want to win in life, most people stop three feet from gold. You know, there's that parable. There's that book, Three Feet from Gold, where you buy the land and you realize you're digging for gold, but you give up three feet from gold. You sell your land. The uh, the investor that buys your property strikes it rich and is rich for decades and for, for generations because he or she believed in the promise. And so I say, believe in the promise. You've all got, every one of us were made by the, the creator. We've been stamped with perfection and divinity. And even though we make mistakes, we are all unique and we have a unique calling and a special, special gift. So we want to find our purpose. If you're not happy in life, uh, stop what you're doing and say, why am I not happy? You know, uh, God gave Adam and Eve a beautiful garden and he said, now go enjoy it. Have fun. Be fruitful and multiply. If your work doesn't bring you joy, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. You know, I always told my kids, it, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, but if you can learn to be a good communicator, a good listener, ask good questions, and be a good writer, you can work in any industry. I mean, tell me an industry where it's not required that you be a good communicator, a good listener, and a good writer, and a good team player. If you can do that, you can excel anywhere. That's right. You're absolutely correct. Now, you mentioned God uh, quite often. How important is your relationship with God to you? 
You know, we've got a romance novelist named named Dee Dee Cox, and uh, I asked her that very question the other day because when you think of romance and you think of a, you know, a Hallmark movie, this this is called The Perfect Christmas, and it's being optioned for a movie right now. But when you look at The Perfect Christmas, her other book, Stolen Roses, being optioned for a, for a movie, if you drive through Louisville, Kentucky right now, she's over all the billboards wishing everybody a Merry Christmas, but. I asked her that very question. I said, you write romance novels. They're not Christian books per se, but you talk a lot about God. Why do you do that? And she said, why wouldn't you do that? And and for me, it's like I wake up in the morning and I thank God that I'm alive. I thank God that I'm still breathing. And I thank God that I'm healthy and that my eyes can see. To me, I can't separate God from the food that I eat, from my family, from my parents. I go out and exercise. I feel great. I go to bed. I feel great. I see my family for Christmas. I feel great. All these things that I'm thankful for, I owe it all to him. Now, some people don't have that revelation yet, but if you look at ancient cultures throughout all over the world, even unreached people, roots, they're all worshiping something. Maybe they made an idol. Maybe they made cows God and they don't eat cows or whatever. But every culture, every people group around the world, if they've had not even any connection with the outside world or television or radio, they still know and believe and worship a God because we're all made in the image of God. So to me, I can't really separate that. I don't try to use my faith um, to open doors that I shouldn't. But I let people know, hey, I'm a Christian. If you want me to pray for you, I'm not afraid to pray for you or speak a word of encouragement to you. I'll, I'll do that because here's what Jesus means to me. Uh, I've slipped and fall. I made more mistakes than most people. At my age, I've done a lot of things that I, I, I don't want to go back and repeat. But God's mercy is new every day. And I think that's the amazing thing, Gigi, is the difference between winners and losers in life is, is people that are out there doing it, making it happen. They normally have more failure in their life. You know, Babe Ruth struck out more times than he ever, than he ever hit or got on bases because he swung the bat more. And so I'm always, if I'm always in sales, I'm always looking for no's because the more no's I get, that means I'm getting closer to a yes. I love it. Look for the no. Very powerful. Now, Michael, was there a time in your life journey where you experienced an aha moment? You know, I, I had, uh, I, I would say every one of my kids are an aha moment. I, um, after my divorce was a very tough time because I, I kind of took that personally. I could have done a better job fighting for my family and, and, and keeping my family together. Um, but in the moment, I was in a lot of pain. So I gave up and just said, okay, I'll sign this and uh, I'll just focus on my kids. And um, realizing that after that, it was like my aha moment was like, I'm young, I'm, I'm 30. Three, I could be, do, or I could live anywhere in the world. I could go back to school. I could do whatever I want. I could just provide for my kids. And what do I want to do? You know, when you have a family and you have obligations and your kids are young, you're limited because you don't have as much time in the day to do everything you want to do. Occasionally you have to sleep and pay the bills and do those kinds of things. But I would say, what is it you want to do? And that's been kind of my aha moment. And so I've traveled to 30 countries. I've met with people. I've spoken on stages. I've empowered people. My biggest ha-ha moment is always the next book that we're going to launch. Because to me, that gives me the most fulfillment. 
is to sell some uh, to sell God first to sell your book in Australia to sell your book in Europe. We're doing the London Book Show in June. That means a lot to me to have authors speaking on my stage in in London for you to come to Guadalajara or, or Johannesburg, South Africa, and speak on one of my stages. That means a lot. You know, I've seen you speak in L.A. I've seen you speak in Dallas. I know that every time you step on stage, you're transforming lives. And to me. With event, I've heard you speak in San Antonio at Daniel's event. I just think anytime you step on, and I know you're coming back to be a key, to be his keynote speaker. So you know how important and powerful that is, and life changing that is. That to me is is the moment. You had asked about my book, The Speaker's Edge, and um, it is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere. It's a pre release copy because we're launching the bigger version. In uh, in March, but we did the first version as a advanced reader copy to get feedback, and then to also make it available for Sticker Shock Speaking Academy. But I've been working with speakers for thirty years and encouraging them and coaching them on speaking tips. And I got to tell you, Gigi, basically the way I prepare a speech is the way I do a sermon. You want me to give you the five step formula? Tell us. Talk to us. <laughs> okay. Decide what you're going to tell me, and then you get on the stage and you tell me what you're going to tell me. And then you spend the next 15 minutes telling me what you want to tell me. And then at the end of that, you tell me what you told me. Okay. For example, today I'm going to tell you how to uh, um, improve your credit during a pandemic. And then I go through the steps, do this, 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 and this. And then I say, okay, today I told you how to improve your credit post-pandemic. And then I say, now go out there and do it. And here are the takeaways. So it's the same basic formula. So my youngest son, Jeremiah, is a culinary chef. And so it's all about preparation and presentation. We have four food groups. And so at the end of the day, you know, I might go over here and get something out of the fridge and, and throw it in the microwave and reheat it. But I'm a, I might mix it with something new. Maybe I have a leftover steak. I'm going to throw in some new veggies. I'm going to mix it up. We need every day fresh motivation, fresh content. Now, some people get so hooked on Les Brown and motivation and rah-rah and and, and Joel Osteen and all that's good. But at some point, you got to get out there and do it. Okay. So I, I try to go for the same, you know, it's like having your veggies and your dessert. I like to have my protein, which is my, my to-do list. I need to know what's next. I make my to-do list. Then I go out there and do it. I know when I need motivation, but sometimes I just need information because I don't know how to do it. That's when I ask other people. So my big aha, my big takeaway is, Whatever you want to do in life, you can do it. You can do it bigger and better. It used to be as we were building America and we were building houses all over the world, you used a simple hammer, nail, and a saw. And it took you know three to six months for one or two carpenters to build a house. Now I'm looking at neighborhoods around Frisco, Texas, and these houses are blowing up in two weeks. They have a crew that comes through. They, everybody's got power tools. Everything's systematized. You can have in your life, the life you want. Don't think you can't. Live in one city. Work in another city. Commute by, pl by plane. When I lived in Orange County a few years ago is when I met you. I met you when I was living in Orange County, and that's what people did. They commuted from Orange County and worked in Silicon Valley because it's so pricey to live in Silicon Valley, but they had a startup, and they were worth a lot of money. They could afford a house in Silicon Valley, but what they do? They commuted three days a week. They flew in on Sunday. They flew back home on Thursday. And that was their life. So you can have the life that you want. You don't have to do it like your grandparents did. Amen. I love it. Now tell us more about what gives you happiness in your life. 
So the older I get, and I'll be 53 this next year, is is um, 30. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, all bald guys. We it does give us an edge. I appreciate that. But as I'm getting older, it's just spending more time with family and and kids and grandkids because they grow up so quick. I look at this. I look at my sons now, and I'm, I think to myself, and sometimes I tell them, when I was your age, I had four sons, and um, fortunately, I don't have 16 grandkids yet, but someday I will. And right now I have two. So life starts happening fast. And I would say plant a seed to where you want to be. I can remember when I got the divorce papers, I um, I was living in a brain fog and a funk. Um, my finances were a mess. My health was a mess. I was overweight. I was eating fast food three times a day. I was drinking a two liter of Mountain Dew a day. I was working 100 hours a week and I was depressed. And... Um, yeah, that plant and seed where you want to be. I used to cry myself to sleep every night. I would I would talk to a therapist either on the phone or in person because I was working through my anger issues, working through my abandonment issues. I was had a lot of self-blame and self-doubt. And then all of a sudden at one point, about six months after that, I said, you know, I'm ready to take ownership of where I'm at and say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Forgive me. And I can't go back and change anything, but I can move on from where I'm at. And so that's simply what I did. Plant a seed to where you want to be. If you want to be a marathoner, I decided at that moment, I, I wrote a life life goal bucket list. One of those things was to run a marathon. And um, I realized six months before my 40th birthday that um, the marathon before 40 was on my bucket list. And normally you need a year to run a marathon to practice. Uh, I went out that day and uh, I ran one block and one mailbox and I was out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> the next day I ran a block in two mailboxes and I almost died. And that's when I went to Google and asked for help. And I found a running group and a new pair of running shoes. And that running group helped me, you know, get up 5 a.m. on Saturday mornings and go run 20 miles with my friends. Otherwise, I would have stayed in bed and not seen my goal. But because I had a group holding me accountable, hold myself accountable because I paid money and invested in myself to see my goal. It was a lot of pain, but I pressed through. And then six months later, when I crossed the finish line, one of the highlights of my life was my my all four of my sons um, jumped out of the viewing area on the street there toward the end of the marathon. The last three miles, they ran it with me and crossed the finish line with me. So that was one of the highlights of my life, other than them being born. That is absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing that with us, Michael. Press through the pain, very powerful. Now we have our global virtual panel of breast cancer survivors event coming up tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern. I wanna say thank you for sponsoring this event, Michael. And I truly look forward to hearing your story as well in regards to your son uh, having cancer as well. I know you'll share a brief of that. Tomorrow. Well, you know, I gotta say, I gotta say, I'm really proud of your cancer affects a lot of people. And I'm really proud that you're inspiring women all over the world. And and we did get the news when my son was 15 and uh, he was just having some growing pains and, and his mom took him into the doctor and we got really bad news. And, you know, he had a basically a 50, 50 survival rate. It was the fastest growing uh, uh, leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia. So they did surgery the next day, four rounds of chemo, a bone marrow transplant. And it was a long journey and uh, it, it was touch and go many times. He was in the uh, ICU, but thank God, for God's mercy and grace, and and thank God he's ten years cancer free now, and and he's a cancer survivor, and and he's working in a hospital now. It's his give back, and he's happy as can be, and doing great. 
Amen. God is great. And I'm glad to hear your son is okay as well. Amen. Twenty-six. Now, what's that? He's 26 now. Yeah, it's been 10 years. My goodness, time flies. And again, thank God he's okay. Joshua. Uh, Joshua, yes. Amen. And my prayers are with Joshua as well. My thank you. And but yeah, your event will be really great. great. I was at your last event. You always you always throw great events and, and have a great lineup of speakers. So mark it out on your calendar. Be there. Gigi knows how to bring it. It's a great online event. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you. Now, what is your best advice to the audience for walking with purpose and living a life of happiness? I, I would say pain is in your life for a reason. If you're feeling pain, don't be like the guy with duct tape just to uh, take ibuprofen and tape it back up and get back in the game of life. If you're hurting, there's a reason. If your hand's on the oven, there, there's a reason your hand's burning and burnt flesh is in your nostrils. That's a sign from God. You've been praying for a sign from God. Pain is a sign from God that something's not right in your body or in your mind or in your heart. So if you're experiencing pain, say, why am I experiencing pain? One of the things I learned to do after the divorce, Gigi, was how to process that and say, why? What's going on? Okay, this is not resolved with this person. Let me figure out what I need to do to make it right with this person. And so as I began to work through some of that, I began to get clarity. I began to lose the brain fog. I began to get my energy back. I used to not be able to make it through the day without taking a nap. And I would just have, you know, feel this this brain fog and this funk and be so exhausted, but I had so much work to do. Now my purpose drives me and, and I'm not the same person. Amen. Very powerful. Let your purpose drive you. Amen. Now, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest on Walk With Me podcast. I truly appreciate you. Now, where can the audience find you? MichaelDButler.com is my website. There you will find the link to uh, uh, our writing course. There you will find the link to the the free book. And um, there's my email address, michael at beyondpublishing.net. Now, if somebody um, has a book idea and, and wants to run a book idea by me, I'd be happy to talk with you about your book to see if it's a sellable book and give you some, some free feedback. Just jump on my calendar at meetmichaeld.com and I'd be happy to uh, give, your, give your listeners a free consult and uh, see what we can do about their book to get them out to the world, Gigi. Thank you. Michael, again, for being a guest on Walk With Me podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, make sure to check out Michael on his website and also write books in 60 days.com, correct? Write books 60 days.com. And my that's it. And I would say this too if you haven't grabbed uh, Gigi's book, uh, both of them, Walk With Me and God First, go ahead and grab it. It's in our new catalog for the new year. So go ahead and grab it. And it's Walk With Me. And you're going to find Gigi's story in a deeper way. You might say, what does a book do for you? It is marketing. It can definitely open doors for you. And we hear from our authors, uh, 350 authors now in 20 countries all the time about, hey, it's opening doors for me. I'm getting on podcasts. I'm getting interviewed. And it can do that for you as well. So I applaud you, Gigi. And uh, kudos on the event for tomorrow. And thanks so much for having me on your show. You're welcome. And thank you, Michael. Have a blessed day, my friend. <laughs> really proud of you. Okay, see you tomorrow.